Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I hate counterfactuals with blinding hot rage of death. I was just, I think, oh, no. oh man. I love no. counterfactuals. Okay, Darren, next time you take a vacation, Jane and I, we're going to do counterfactuals. Yep. We're going to talk about uh, Star Trek. Yep. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, here as usual with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. We obviously have had some opportunity to talk about uh, the, the the George Floyd protests and, and related issues, um, but there is so much raised by that, that that we could delve into. We were talking offline, should we explain how to solve racism or how to fix policing. And we felt like we were maybe on firmer ground with policing for one episode. And just to be clear, like, I'm not an idiot. These are related topics. Uh, but it, but I do also think that they are separable. Obviously, there are a lot of questions about race in America that have nothing to do with the police. And there are a lot of technical questions about what do we do with police departments and how they're managed, how they are funded, etc., in which improving racial equity is like one of several goals. But I also think that a lot of the reforms we're going to talk about today, the proponents of those reforms argue that they would address police brutality and police misconduct across the board. Because one of the challenges here is that when we're talking about race and policing, which are obviously intertwined, sometimes that eludes the fact that police brutality and police misconduct happens to non-Black people as well. For instance, the state of New Mexico uh, had the highest rate of police... I'm going to use the term they use, which is police-involved shooting, which seems to make it sound like a Jane police was officer. Making air quotes when she said that, but you can't quote unquote see it on the yes. podcast. Um, and the predominant number of people who are killed by police in New Mexico and numerous other areas are Native American folks and folks of Hispanic origin, and so across the board, police misconduct is bad for everyone. It's bad for the institution of policing, as we've seen. It's bad for the people who are getting policed. It's bad for the people who want police to be better. It's just bad. And so I think it's important to talk about these reforms that we're going to get into, talking about qualified immunity or the idea of reducing police funding. You know, This is a across-the-board reform in order to solve an across-the-board problem. 
it is also worth kind of distinguishing the issues of brutality and misconduct a little bit. Yes, brutality that's is a, good a point. subset of misconduct, both in the like in the context of the relationship between policing and racism, where one of the points raised in response to points about non-black Americans also being killed by law enforcement, there is an argument of the spectrum of dehumanization that occurs when they deal with individuals in a, an abusive way goes all the way from just like pretextual stops to killing people. So there is the question of whether those kind of harms on the lighter end of the spectrum are racially, you know, are whether there are racial disparities and what kind of effects those lighter harms, quote unquote, have on police community relations is a bigger question that does inevitably get into race much more than the kind of tip of the iceberg stuff of police shootings. And police community relations is a very important question here, because when we're talking about reforming policing or, you know, reimagining policing or for that matter, for like certain certain definitions of the term abolish policing and like the sloganeering debate over abolish and defund and reform is like not something that we're getting into here. But the idea that something is poisoned in police community relations and needs to be reset or needs to be dug out and start over animates a lot of these. And so it's worth thinking about policies, you know, that sound kind of commonsensical or that sound like good government stuff in the framework of to what extent could this, if implemented successfully, actually change police community relations? Is this something that is likely to really be felt in the community? Or are we talking about harm reduction in such a way that it's not really going to change the fundamental distrust that currently exists? Jumping off that, I mean, I, I want to make some observations about a couple concrete things that are that are out in the air. One is there is the um, A Can't Wait campaign, uh, which is uh, something I, I wrote about for, for the site. This was put together by, frankly, very smart people who I think know what they're doing. And what they're doing is they've come up with a menu of things that a mayor or a police chief or a governor could say, I am going to embrace this. And you could get it done in like two or three days. That's important. You know what I mean? Like, lots of things are important in life. But when people are in the streets and they're angry, it's important to be able to, like, make policy commitments that are fast, easy to implement, don't involve, we're going to have a seven-year pilot project, you know, things like that. But they very narrowly tailor to situations in which a police officer might kill somebody. And if you implemented them all and you believe that these things work, which I think the evidence for is okay, it's not amazing, but it's but it's it's okay. There are some pretty persuasive, if anecdotal, counter arguments about like which of these policies had been implemented in, say, Minneapolis that do kind of go to the question of what the difference is between enacting something and implementing it. Right. But yes. But even if it all works great. Right. These really are about police officers killing people. The one that's best backed by evidence, which is not relevant to the Minneapolis case, is about shooting guns at moving vehicles because it's it's just very dangerous. And police officers have reason to do that. And it really depends. Right. Like if you come back to your boss and you're like, he's like, why'd you let those guys get away? And your answer is, well, I would have had to shoot at a moving vehicle. Then whether the rule says you should do that or not 
can be like quite decisive. Um, I think people aren't out there like looking to get bystanders killed. Um, and so like when New York City implemented that rule, which they did a long time ago, uh, the amount of weapons discharges fell like quite dramatically because uh, this is apparently something that like comes up. All that being said, this is really just about killing people. And, you know, when you look at surveys, right, a very large share of the population, particularly African-American, Latino, particularly male, says that they have been mistreated by the police. They obviously mostly have not been killed by the police. And things about chokeholds, like, they're not going to address that kind of stuff. Uh, Then conversely, you know, one thing that strikes a lot of people intuitively is, well, we should make the police forces more diverse. And skeptics of that often point to the fact that there isn't great evidence that that has an impact on shootings. But there is pretty good evidence that that makes a difference for lower level issues. So uh, there's a guy named Bokar Ba. He's a uh, an economist, um, I, I think, at University of Chicago. He has a lot of research on policing issues, typically looking specifically at Chicago. But he co-authored a paper with Dean Knox, Jonathan Mumolo, and uh, Roman Rivera, and he shows, you know, pretty clearly that African American officers are much less likely to do uh, "quote unquote" suspicious behavior stops, which is like, I, I don't know what that means, right? Um, there's other research that I've talked about before. It shows those kind of stops are not uh, efficacious in reducing crime. Um, they are obviously very upsetting to people, and they tend to be. Um, even if you want to have a very generous construal of what's going on, the police officers are sent to high crime neighborhoods, which are predominantly African-American Latino. So the, even if you then implement the discretionary stops in a totally race blind manner, like if there's no white people on the street, you're only going to stop black and Latino people. They have no crime control benefit. And apparently black officers are much less likely to do them. Now, he finds some nuance in here. Latino identified officers who do not speak Spanish actually stop Latinos at a much higher rate than anybody else does, which is a little bit of a, a an oddity. So when you think about diversity, it's it's a hard question. Um, then, then there's a, another paper um, that, that Jennifer Doliak uh, pointed to um, a, a few days ago, and it shows that uh, from looking at affirmative action lawsuits, that officers, uh, departments rather, that have more African-American officers are more responsive to African-American crime concerns, and they generate actually lower levels of crime victimization, right? So neither of these things relates to like the most extreme forms of like cops murdering people, but it paints a picture where if you have a more diverse department, there will be lower crime in Black neighborhoods and also fewer incidents of police officers uh, stopping people for no reason. And that would be good because crime is bad, uh, because being hassled for no reason is bad. But also, I think if you want to talk about like, quote unquote, community relations, that widespread low-level harassment and widespread uh crime incidents are like what's going to drive a normal person's experience of day-to-day life. If you see the new, more diverse department is hassling fewer innocent people and doing a better job of preventing crime, you're going to have a much friendlier view of like what's going on instead of like what's this occupying army doing. So, you know, that kind of stuff I think is is important to look at what is a typical police day like rather than what are the most extreme cases right 
I think that the other thing about both about kind of the the things that you're starting with in in the concrete discussion is that they are things that can easily be done, which is to say, have already been done in many places. And there are things that can be done without alienating any relevant constituencies, right? Like the, by definition, when we're talking about the last couple of waves of police reforms with the extent, with the exception of federal consent decrees um, and the institutional reforms that can happen downstream of those in general, things that like city councils tend to enact or, you know, that counties tend to enact or or policies that departments adopt themselves are things that police officers either affirmatively want or aren't will if they're not hills they're willing to die on. So the universe of, you know, reforms that we've seen has been necessary has been constrained by the obligation to feel that like everybody is on board everybody has a, a seat at the table there is another universe out there of things that social scientists might suspect are efficacious or there might actually be some evidence that you know some departments have implemented them and they're efficacious but in practice up to this point you haven't been able to get a political constituency for them because even if in theory a lot of Americans would agree with as a polling question, like, I don't know, for example, it should be harder to rehire an officer who's been fired for misconduct or, you know, officers who've killed somebody shouldn't get to be put on administrative leave for the years that their cases go through the court or like somebody who's convicted of killing somebody, you know, shouldn't like they should lose their pension, that kind of thing. There isn't a passionate and broad enough constituency or there hasn't to this point been a passionate and broad enough constituency to insulate a local politician from the blowback they're going to get from established police interests. So, you know, the question of whether that's changing is, I think, a really big question that none of us and frankly, nobody out there can answer at this particular moment in time, because when people's attention gets activated and what it's activated towards are like big TBDs. but. One of the problems we're dealing with here in terms of a menu of possible police fixes is that there is an inverse correlation between the amount of evidence we have on something and how radical a change it would be. Right. Um, it's, I think that that's why so many of the reforms that have been suggested, especially at the federal level, um, Donald Trump is expected to sign an executive order today on reforms. But the reforms are like gentle suggestions that police departments contemplate reforming their actions, which is the the lukewarmest possible formulation of this. But it comes from that very political salience that Dara was just talking about, where when we talk in broad strokes, like, should bad cops be allowed to continue to be cops? Pollsters can find absolutely not. But in much the same phenomena that many people hate Congress, but like their congressmen, many people like want broad police reforms, but not necessarily for their police department or for their local police in general. And so when you have those specific examples, especially because the political blowback that happens that leads to police being able to go unscathed even after acting outside of the bounds of the law you know, that blowback comes from police unions that blowback comes from the constituency that matters most to local politicians local politicians do not necessarily care that much about 
you know, until they until it gets loud enough about kind of a national perspective when their job is to essentially get themselves reelected by the people who are saying, don't fire this cop. If you fire this cop, we'll make sure you don't win your next city council race. Let's talk about some specifics here, right? Because we sort of talked about one bucket of reforms is changes to the conduct guidelines, right? And that's the kind of um, low-hanging fruit of reform. Uh, Then I talked about sort of diversity initiatives that I think would have a real impact, but necessarily that would be a a marginal impact, like in the technical sense, but like a marginal impact over time, because you have the police force you have to, to a large extent. Then there's what I would call sort of structural changes, right? And this speaks to, I think, unions, which... We don't have a long body of evidence on, uh, but this this paper by uh, Damika Dharmapala, Richard McAdams, John Rappaport, that has been discussed a lot over the past couple of years, is good evidence. Because what happened was, was that cops in Florida could bargain collectively, but sheriff's deputies couldn't. And then a court decision gave sheriff's deputies collective bargaining rights. So you can compare the overlapping jurisdictions of the sheriffs to the police departments that underlie them. Um, And it found a a huge uh, increase in in misconduct. Um, I think about 50% increase in different kinds of excessive force complaints and and other things like that. Um, So I don't know. You know, I mean, if if you could do that experiment again, maybe you would find smaller effects. There's maybe something idiosyncratic about about the Florida situation, but but that seems like a like a big one. And then two things that are closely related to the unions, which is police officers don't get fired all that frequently, uh, but it does happen sometimes. So you're typically talking about an officer who is quite a bit worse than the average officer um, to be in a position to get dismissed. And furthermore, given the kind of sociological research on network effects, the sort of officer who is likely to be making it, who is likely to be encouraging or facilitating misconduct among anyone working with that officer. So like a, a potential super spreader, if you will, of misconduct within your department. Exactly. Yeah. So so misconduct spreads through, through social networks. Um, so we've got this good reporting. Uh, Wesley Lowry and a couple of colleagues at the Washington Post did a, a big feature called Rehired about how frequently um, union arbitration mechanisms end up sort of forcing officers back onto the force. Um, Then there's been a lot of somewhat disparate reporting on officers who kind of bounce around from department to department. Uh, In a lot of America, not that much actually around where we live, but a lot of America is very fragmented municipalities. You know, so you could be fired from the Waltham police and the next thing you know, uh, you're in the the, the Watertown police and, and, and something like that. And it's... I think in a superficial sense, it's like, okay, this guy's an experienced police officer. He's worked in the region. Like, why not hire him, right? But obviously, I think you shouldn't do that. So the the evidence on all of those things, I think, is only around the margin. Because as Dara was saying, we haven't really done it. But I, at least, have really come to believe that if you... um fired the worst offenders, right? Like people who are probably like two standard deviations more complaints than the typical officer. Because we see, right, that um, USA Today got like this huge database of misconduct complaints. And the typical officer has no complaints. 
that's probably not because they never did anything wrong. Uh, people tend not to file these things. But plenty of officers had like 10 or more. Right. So, so some officers are doing something that is inspiring way more complaints. If you fire those people, you keep them fired. You prevent them from getting rehired. You probably have to raise the starting salary in exchange because you know, people bargain for job security, but then you use those new vacancies to build more divorce forces. It seems to me that you could have a much, much, much better situation and that policing would still be recognizably similar to what it is today, but I think actually a lot better because not firing officers who are engaged in egregious misconduct or at best bumping them over into a neighboring department. Like, it's just obviously terrible. You know, right. to be to be having a conversation about, oh, we tried these reforms and they haven't worked, when like the list of reforms you've tried doesn't include fire the people who are breaking the rules. Like, come on, like, what are we doing? Especially because you, know, you have departments that are like, ah, we're going to use implicit bias training. But let's keep in mind that implicit bias training has its own history. And I'm you know, largely concerned about its the, the widening of its use. But also the officer who murdered George Floyd had 17 misconduct complaints against him. A lot of these cases in which a police officer kills someone, particularly in these situations, if you go back and look at the complaints against them, you can see that like, oh, the excessive use of force complaints or general misconduct complaints. It, there's a there's a history to this that I think we seem to forget when we're talking about these reforms. I think that the big rock and like it's not like you didn't mention this, Matt, but there are lots of ways that you could imagine going about the kind of firing bad cops problem. I was talking to my local subject matter expert about this, uh, and he pointed out that you would want to create a mechanism that wouldn't allow someone who knew they were going to get fired to simply resign. And you'd probably want to have something of the kind of liability risk, you know, in there that is another arm of this problem, right? Like right now, both because of the legal doctrine of qualified immunity, which Jane's going to be getting into a little bit more in a later episode, but which like broadly construed is a judicial doctrine that you don't get to sue individual cops for depriving you of your civil rights. And the kind of general fact that officers and departments don't end up getting kind of hit with lots and lots and lots and lots of lawsuits. So there isn't a financial incentive to keep people playing by the rules. You know, you would probably want to mix some of that in with any kind of don't rehire bad cops initiative such that you would the, the liability would fall on the institution that was, you know, that was willing to hire people who had had misconduct cloud their records elsewhere. But how you would design this in a vacuum is a little bit academic because this gets to core labor concerns. Like when we talk about police unions, we're often talking about their function as a an interest group or as an, you know, as an ideological entity. And that's definitely relevant. And it's definitely a big part of why they've kind of become such an identity politics entity, but how quickly you can establish cause to fire someone and what that does to their future employment prospects or their future you know, financial well-being is not something that anyone would say a union can't bargain on. And so the question of how do you, you know, is it necessary to break the police unions? And if so, how do you legally do that? 
becomes super central here because otherwise we're just talking about a lot of reforms that not only haven't been implemented, but like can't get implemented for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, earlier this week we heard from Senator Tim Scott, Republican Republican from South Carolina, saying that reforming or eliminating qualified immunity is off the table as a reform idea, which I think came as a surprise to a lot of people, especially because you're hearing from people on both sides of the political aisle saying that qualified immunity, which let's be clear, and I discussed this in a podcast that we're posting later this week with the Cato Institute's Clark Neely, and it was a great conversation, but qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine. There is no law that says that police officers are Can you given, just explain it briefly? I mean, I, I would be this, happy. This will be Friday's show, but like, let's let's just get it in here. So, qualified immunity holds that government actors—that goes from police officers to public school teachers or government officials—have protections against liability, even if they violate the civil rights of an individual, whether those are constitutionally protected civil rights or federally protected civil rights. Interestingly, this is basically something that the Supreme Court kind of made up. There were a couple of cases uh, that took place in 1967 and 1982 in which the Supreme Court introduced this concept that qualified immunity is a defense that when you are sued for violating the federally protected rights of an individual, you can say that, yes, you violated those rights, but it was not clearly established that you should have known that you were violating those rights. And it stems from Section 1983 of the Penal Code, which the language has changed, but that's not particularly important just how that comes from. But qualified immunity is essentially a Supreme Court invented judicial doctrine that lower courts have given qualified immunity to bad cop after bad cop after bad cop after bad cop. Cops who have stolen, for example, $250,000 from a house they were searching. Cops who have strip searched children. All of these have been found by judges to have violated the constitutional rights of the individual, but they receive qualified immunity. And in fact, most qualified immunity decisions result in the officer or person getting qualified immunity. And so you know, we go into it in a great deal of detail and the podcast will be coming out later this week. But when you're hearing from people outside of Congress is qualified immunity needs to end. This is a concern. This is essential. You know, there's a way to pitch ending qualified immunity that appeals to literally every politic. And yet Republicans have said, look, absolutely not. We won't do this. That Republicans are more interested in. Um, introducing the use of introducing implicit bias training or you're introducing um, diversity initiatives and not at challenging qualified immunity, which is a, you know, it it is the most activist of judicial activism is interesting to me, but it's, it's a part of this whole conversation. Okay. We, we desperately need to take a break. uh, But then, but then I do think it's, it's good to come back to that. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can 
can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I think we speak here, but, but between Jane and, and Dara's uh, latest points, right, to sort of dual political sensitivities that exist around this, right? One is, you know... Uh, I think more obvious, or at least more familiar to listeners to to this show, and that is pro-cop ideological sentiment on the American political right. Uh, This is something that I think was not a particularly salient feature of American politics traditionally, but a real consequence of Black Lives Matter activists putting this issue on the table has been to create a self-conscious counter-mobilization where we now see cops talked about more in the way that we talk about the troops, right? Um, we have the, the the thin blue line flags. The creation of police as an identity group, they something that you do not become or stop becoming, but like that it is a like immutable characteristic to be a police officer is raises so many questions. And, and of course, th- th- this isn't new exactly, but it's but it's part of the dual movement. The construction of a polarized politics around policing has been a a, a shift I- I- in this kind of sentiment, which to some extent has hardened attitudes on the right in a way that can make reform difficult. The other thing that that Dara was pointing to is that a lot of the things that are problematic about how uh, police misconduct is handled structurally are just identical to issues that are raised for civilian public employees. And while Democrats increasingly don't have like cop identity politics, if anything, the opposite, like Democrats want to be seen as reformers now. But they don't want to be seen as anti-teacher, and they don't want the teachers' unions to see them that way. But the concerns that police reformers raise about how police disciplinary issues are raised are very, very, very closely paralleled to how education reformers see teacher union contract problems. And the sort of... um, Agenda items that I outlined before about raise the starting salary, reduce the job security, make it harder to shuffle around from place to place. Like, I believe in that. I'm not just being an ironist here. But, like, I copy and pasted that from, like, when I used to cover education policy 
issues more. Like that is human capital centric education reform best practices. That if you eliminate the people who are two sigma worse than average, replace them with average performers, you make the compensation more front loaded so that the burnouts quit rather than hanging on doing a bad job. And you basically, you try to stop politicians from compensating employees with um, bad job practices. And you instead say, look, like we are going to pay you money. This is going to be a good job that you are going to want to have, but you will lose the job if you don't do it well. That is a reform agenda that raises a lot of sensitivities in a practical sense for Democrats at the state legislature. It is it is a hard ask politically to ask a mayor or a city council or a state legislator to cut the police budget by 3%. But it is frankly easier to get them to do that than to get them to make structural reforms to the labor relations model, because the other public employees are happy to have the police budget cut because that's more money for them. They are not happy to have the police bargaining paradigm changed because the biggest thing they fear is Scott Walker's divide and conquer strategy from Wisconsin, where he just exempted the police and fire unions from his deunionization push. Uh, but police are were very important allies to labor in Ohio and Missouri in fights around right to work and stuff like that. The Republicans in those states, I wouldn't say they went after police unions, but they were less cynical than Scott Walker, and they didn't exempt police unions from general anti-union stuff. And then the police, precisely because conservatives like cops, the police became incredibly valuable allies to labor. And that's why um, Dara is actually recording in her WGA East uh, shirt here. Um, and, and that union, the union we all belong to, asked the AFL-CIO to disaffiliate the, the police unions from the Federation. And I understand why they ask that. But like, I also really understand why the AFL doesn't want to do that. And like, it's nothing to do with like, police. It's just like, labor is stronger if it can form a sort of corrupt log roll with police unions. But policing is worse. To be clear, there are lots of distinctions that can be like, the purpose of this is not to say that cops and teachers are the same and you can't draw any moral yes, distinctions. The, the cops like kill people. you could but but the fact of the matter is that there is no provision in like the National Labor Relations Act that says that if you carry a gun routinely, that you're unionized under like a separate provision that has more limited bargaining power. Like because it's a legal matter, public sector unions are public sector unions and that has created this kind of political coalition that's either going to be broken on political grounds, like either the AFL-CIO, for example, is going to feel enough pressure from its member unions that it will ultimately disaffiliate, or there will be some kind of legal change. You're not going to, you know, you're, the argument that cops ought to be treated differently only goes so far as people who are not worried that they are going to lose real material power on the basis of this theoretical distinction between cops and other public sector employees. This is also bracketing the question of like, are police unions good members of the labor movement? There's like a decent argument to be made that law enforcement unions weren't necessarily on the front lines of saying like all public sector workers deserve to have, you know, a seat at the bargaining table. But again, that's something that's going to get resolved in the near term through intra labor movement politics. Like I can definitely see a world in which if members of other unions 
put pressure on their syndicates to kind of require more from law enforcement unions if they're going to extend them protections in return. Like maybe that goes somewhere, but it's something that's going to have to get resolved on those grounds, not on the grounds of can you theoretically distinguish between a a union of people who can carry guns and a union of people who can't. Yes, that's that's very helpful. Yes. I just want to say that that I agree with that, that like the question here isn't like, can we as take Smith's draw a line? It's like, can you do the this politics. is also where I think the defunding question does get relevant because obviously the closest thing to a policy ask that has gotten launched onto the table by the last couple of weeks of protests is the idea that police just need to have their budgets cut. And this can go either in the abolitionist direction of because policing is inherently dangerous to people's safety, any reducing of contact between police and civilians is good, or it can go in a slightly more kind of like strategic bank shoddy direction of if the problem with police is that they don't feel that they're under democratic control, showing that if they piss off the the populace too much, there will be repercussions of them might do something to bring them in line. Both of those like might be true. It's also true that because of the kind of because of the union commitments, a department that gets freaked out over defunding can't necessarily do everything that reformers want it to do. In fact, there are concerns about like, okay, if your union contract has last in first out hiring, which it often does, like, is that going to end up purging the younger, more diversity minded members of your police department and entrenching the people who have, you know, 20 years of feeling they're looked down on by their by the communities that they police. Are you going to be able to do a lot if your biggest commitment is to the pensions of your retired officers? Like it is difficult to have the the defunding conversation without also having conversations about both what are the accountability structures that the city is setting for how that money gets spent and the conversation of what are the limits that collective bargaining has imposed on how this department can spend its money? And I think that at a baseline, one of the questions that I think that we need to be asking is, what are police supposed to do? Like, what is the job of police? And there have been a couple of smart writers who've been talking about the idea of unbundling the police because they've raised the point that we think of police as like, ah, those are the people that if you commit a crime, they are the people who will come and deal with you having committed a crime. But also police do traffic stops, police do wellness checks, police do a host of jobs that all put people in close proximity to police officers with, again, the authority of the state to kill them when that's not really at all what is perhaps needed or necessary. Do you need a police officer to be doing these certain jobs? What are the roles here? This is when I put on my libertarian hat and start thinking about the laws that we have in place in general and how we think about those laws, laws that across the board, when you have conversations, even this reform conversation, we're asking police to put in place reforms that they themselves will enforce, which seems a little circuitous. If you are charged with disorderly conduct, for example, What is disorderly conduct? If you are charged with a number of offenses that can land you in jail for any length of time, even before you begin to be processed through the legal system, a lot of those crimes are 
based largely on the interpretation of the person who called the police on you. So if someone happens to think that your conduct appears to be disorderly, they will call the police. Why are they calling the police? Because that's what you do. You call the police when you see something because you have to say something. And so I think that part of this reform effort has to be a reform of what we think of the police as being. What is the job of police? What is the role of police? Why are they here and what are they supposed to be doing at a very basic level? I think that the conversation about unbundling can often miss the kind of dual political realities of uh, police officers themselves will will rhetorically say that they don't want to be doing this stuff either, but figuring out a workable alternative that police are willing to be partners in is trickier because once you get into any interagency problem, you have to make sure that the incentives aren't are aligned for actual cooperation. Like there's some evidence out there of when someone in mental health crisis can be referred to either police or emergency responders in pra- or like, like EMTs in practice the two institutions end up kind of fighting over who doesn't have to take them uh so it's it's right. there again these are like there are so many things in the policing debate that are ideas where especially given the local nature of policing policy you would kind of love to see a thousand flowers bloom but on the one hand there's the the problem the kind of structural you know union problems on the other hand there's the idea that if there's enough enthusiasm for something you don't want to hold it back from being more widely adopted there was an argument between uh well, there was there was kind of an, a parallel exchange that became a direct exchange on Twitter between Jennifer Doliak, who's an economist who does a lot of kind of crime efficacy work, and uh, Trevon Logan, who's a, a fellow economist who had been making the point that this is really not the time for more studies and more controlled rollout uh, because it's the time to save lives. And, you know, Dr. Doliak's response to Dr. Logan was, well, you are much more confident in the efficacy of this stuff than I am and of your preferred policies than I am. I'm not confident that rolling something out is going to save these lives. And you can appreciate both sides of that for sure. It gets back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago with the coronavirus vaccine, where there are almost certainly steps in a process that can be expedited once you have a reasonable sense that something is going to help. But that doesn't fix the first stage of the problem, which is figuring out what the things are that are going to help. And we're just in such an embryonic stage with that. So I almost want to like unbundle the unbundling conversation because I think there's like a few, you know, uh, the nature of these protests has been to drive a lot of us who are generalist uh, policy writers into these conversations. Um, And so sometimes we like step into, you know, other people's core areas of, of expertise. And like one thing that I think the much more extreme than I am, police skeptics are clearly right about is that in practice, police officers spend a lot of time mopping up the failures of American housing policy. And this isn't really a question of like, well, should there be some other agency that deals with it? It's the question is, is like, why are there so many people experiencing homelessness on any given day? in the United States of America, right? Because the way contemporary society works is that people are supposed to have homes. 
And when you don't have a home, right, like you inherently enter this area of problematicness. Like it is nothing about contemporary society is designed for people to be unhoused. And you are not going to do that without either constantly violating the law or generating massive grassroots pressure to criminalize what it is you're doing. And I think this is a space, too, where like when police officers say this is not what they want to be doing, like they are completely sincere because like I've been to community meetings in my neighborhood, which consist of because D.C. is a is a liberal jurisdiction, traditionally dominant African-American political class. And so it like has rules on the books that tend to reflect a progressive perspective. So it's less here like police hassling people experiencing homelessness than small business owners hassling cops about the fact that they aren't arresting people who aren't actually breaking any laws. And the police are just like, they're caught in the middle of this dynamic. And what it calls for is a a housing policy solution, uh, which you can you can look up many, many, many episodes of The Weeds for discussions of this. Um, But it would be... a large side benefit to not having tons of people sleeping on the streets uh, would be a great deal of reduction in these kind of issues where people want the police to quote unquote do something, but the subjects of the policing are like not actually dangerous, violent felons. Some of this other stuff about traffic stops, I worry about. I I, I would like to hear an interview with like a 911 dispatcher or not even a dispatcher, but like, I know a guy who designs computer systems to manage 911 dispatch calls. And like, he is very skeptical of this. I don't know, right? In a big, dense city, it should be possible to have multiple overlapping first response agencies that you call, uh, because it's dense. Most people don't live in big, dense cities. And my at least proximate understanding of why the police show up to everything is that if, as long as you have the premise that you should have this like fleet of police officers out and around patrolling, it's convenient to have them respond to calls, right? And to have like three different redundant agencies with a fleet of vehicles all everywhere is going to cost a ton of money. But to say, well, most of these calls don't require police officers doesn't change the fact that when you do need a police officer, like there's an active shooter someplace, you would like the dispatch to happen quickly. Right. Like, it's not good enough to say, like, well, this kind of spree killing is rare. So that's why we didn't bother to, like, send anyone over there. We had an unarmed mental health specialist nearby, but we didn't really think he should handle You know, like, it's it's a tough situation, like where the the nitty gritty I think it needs some work. Um, probably not in New York and San Francisco. Like, I think they should, like, go ahead, like, full Trevon Logan. Like, let's just get her done here. Because uh, they've got, New York in particular has, like, a bajillion cops per square mile. Um, and often... The number the number of NYPD officers there are is insane. Well, so all aspects of the discourse wind up overweighting New York. So something I want people to recognize when they read takes that emanate from New York is that New York City has an unusually high number of police officers per capita and also has by far the most people per square mile of any place in the United States. So if you look at officers per square mile, New York is like off the charts. 
sense, right? So there's a lot of conversations you could have about New York City that I think don't necessarily apply to the rest of the country in terms of like, do they actually need a police officer every six feet? Um, it's also a very low crime city. So like the case for doing things where you your worry might be, oh, there might be some more crime is like pretty weak in New York. Um, I, I think, you know, if you're talking about Phoenix, you, you might want to look at these things differently. Anyway, that's unbundling. I think it's, it's, it's like promising, but it's complicated. I feel more like Jennifer Doliak. Uh, the point about New York raises one other kind of policy thing that it, that we've seen on the uh, that that we've seen kind of come onto the table, which is the disbanding of certain units that have big problems. Like the NYPD just declared yesterday that it was going to essentially disband its plainclothes unit, which was responsible for a massively disproportionate number of civilian shootings. And like, if you think about it, that's especially problematic because those are people who the civilian in question won't necessarily recognize as a police officer. A lot of the you know, shootings that we've seen in the last several years have been in contexts in which people reasonably don't expect that the person they're dealing with is an officer and therefore are more likely to respond as if someone is just threatening them with force or invading their home for no reason. Um, the use of kind of specialty units gets at the question of what is policing for, because it's exactly the kind of it sounds like the sort of technocratic targeted approach that if you really, really cared about solving crimes, you would have all of these specialists who know exactly what the patterns of behavior for particular kinds of crimes are and know how to go about their day to day business in a way that's going to like have the biggest leverage. But in practice, this is often where the work that beat cops do to the extent that there are, you know, that that be, some beat cops are like invested in police community relations can get undermined when you have some guys in a, you know, gun recovery unit driving around, just jumping out, try, you know, frisking people at, at like threatening them and be, and running off. So there this is this is kind of something else to kind of keep an eye on as departments figure out what they can do. It's not you know, it's obviously not like getting rid of those officers and that, you know, that's it's it's not going to satisfy any kind of abolitionist demands for that reason. But it's going to be interesting to see whether that gets more widely adopted and what effect that has on, if any, on crime. Because one of the other questions here is no politician is going to be happy if crime goes up. But if crime doesn't go up, it makes it very, very hard for, in theory, in theory, for law enforcement to argue in future that they are the thing stopping society from degenerating into total Mad Max. I mean, those specialist units, you know, I I think definitely deserve a, a closer look. I mean, because you've seen so many times, right? There was the Baltimore Gun Trace uh, unit. There was the L.A. Ramparts unit. Um, like huge corruption scandals often seem to emanate from these kind of special units, uh, which really raises the question of like, what is the intended purpose of them, since they appear to have a, a very large amount of downside risk. And, you know, I I am like a big believer in police reduced crime uh, theory, which has become, I think, a little unfashionable on, on the internet, if not in public opinion. Uh, but almost all of that research says that police officers reduce crime mostly by just kind of standing around um, and being like like C and B scene kind of stuff rather than like awesome, like cracking heads, guns on the table. We're getting results, chief, 
kind of stuff. Um, I have never seen anyone try to demonstrate that these specialty units um, achieve anything important, Um, though they obviously achieve PR wins, right? I mean, the problem with a police officer uh, doing a hotspot patrol and therefore people don't do the crimes is that like at the end of the day, all you have to show for it is like some guys stood around and nothing happened. Uh, whereas if you like go in with super aggressive tactics and serve no-knock warrants and knock down three people's doors, like you really may find like a big stockpile of guns or drugs or cash or something somewhere. And you can be like, ha-ha, we took a bite out of crime, which like I think is the appeal of of those kinds of things. But that's one where like I, I really think the burden of proof should be on the other side to like try to show that that's actually useful as opposed to very typical public sector problem where you have like overemphasis on highly visible results versus emphasis on like outcomes that be like nobody cares how many press conferences you have with like some big stack of illegal crap that you seize like that that's not important to people's lives whereas like the level right. of yeah your photograph of you seizing one ounce of marijuana and three guns does not really matter much to me. Yeah, and it it doesn't help, you know? I like like I, I mean this is like just classic war on drugs type stuff, but like I don't know. It's it's very frustrating to me. Um so I hope we see more places go like that. I saw some people just like poo-pooing this New York initiative. Um but they seem to be shooting at like four or five times the rate of the rest of the department. So that actually doesn't seem like a small thing. Now, it depends. Maybe those particular officers are just incredibly trigger happy and they're going to do the same shit in a different institutional context. But I think most of what we know about human beings is that institutional context actually does matter a fair amount. Um so like we'll have to see, but it it strikes me as like a very reasonable uh thing to pursue. All right, just take another break, do a white paper. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We are this week uh, 
talking about the the most surprisingly controversial paper in historical sociology, um, Agenda Seeding, How 1960s Black Protests Moved Elites, Public Opinion and Voting. It's by Omar Wasso of Princeton. Uh, and it's a uses a ton of different methods. Like we're literally talking about everything from content analysis of headlines on front pages or, or, or like front page news articles to a simulated version of the 1968 presidential election to demonstrate that in general, the nonviolent protests of the you know early to mid 1960s associated with the civil rights movement uh, did a lot to move media framing, elite discourse, and ultimately public opinion in the direction of supporting civil rights because it retained a a frame of these people are speaking out, you know, for basic human rights and are often being responded to with force. And protests in which there was protester-initiated violence had the effect of shifting public opinion toward the right and con- activating concern among elites about social control and law and order, ultimately leading to the election of Richard Nixon in 1968. The paper author kind of poses this as as solving a mystery of why, you know, the momentum of 1964 didn't carry over into 1968, which I think overstates the case a little bit. It seems awfully plausible to me that the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65 led a lot of white Americans to assume that like it was over and done and nobody had anything that they ought to complain about anymore. But it is a fairly persuasive argument that, you know, as he says toward the end of the paper, an eye for an eye in response to violent repression may be moral, but this research suggests it may not be strategic. And of course, that raises questions about who is doing the strategizing and who bears the moral responsibility for the response versus their oppression. But it's you know, I, I would I would urge reading the paper, you know, or at least like skimming it if you've gotten really, really interested in the question of the efficacy, uh, you know, the efficacy of riots or the calculus of when protests should engage in violence, um, because it does, in this particular context of the 1960s civil rights movement, put together a pretty nuanced and compelling case. Right. And I thought it was interesting, especially because it gets into a discussion of the idea of framing um, and frame construction, specifically media framing, because the media is their you know, their job in some ways is both to set agendas and reflect the agendas as presented by these protesters. I would recommend folks look in this paper at figure two, which talks about how if you have a subordinate group of activists who want to elevate their concerns and you have their interactions with the state differ based on whether or not they themselves were violent or whether the state was violent. Then you move on to how the media sets that agenda and frames the issues that the protests began at, and then the people respond to that media framing. And especially because, um, you know, I'll give an example. It's it's interesting how much of that, and it goes into the paper, that you can frame, even if the state is violent in response to protests being violent, that's rioting and disorder. If the state is violent, but the protesters are nonviolent, then there's a focus on what the protesters are actually trying to say or do. But and I think that this is something that people who were involved in the early days of the civil rights movement were very much aware of, that it was not so much about them themselves being nonviolent. It was about the fact that they were being nonviolent. And in response, the state responded with overwhelming violence, overwhelming violence that was then broadcast across the country. 
And at the same time, I, I completely understand because reading this, Dara noted that quote about, you know, kind of the difference between efficacy and morality, because from a moral standpoint, that shouldn't be necessary. You should not have needed to see police dogs launched on small children to think, huh, I think something bad is happening in Alabama right now. And we should maybe do something about it. But the people who were behind these protests were well aware that that is what white Americans largely needed to see because they were unaware at best and blinkered at worst from what was happening to a large swath of their own country. And so I think that this paper is very useful, but it is not very, hmm, what's the best word? It's useful, but it does not make me feel better, which is, you know, what so, what so much of academia is. I think, you know, this paper, right? It's interesting to me primarily because of the detailed empirical work. And I think it's important to contextualize it, though, as like, this is the theory that leaders of nonviolent resistance movements had all along, right? And if you look at the writings of Gandhi, at the like, not the like big sermonizing of Martin Luther King, but the like detailed organizing of him and of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And you can go forward. Um, there was a, a, a this weird video game came out in 2006 uh, that's called A Force More Powerful. And it was like based on uh, a bunch of work that I got in with, with nonviolent resistance movements. And I, and I met this uh, Serbian guy who was involved with a, a group called Otpor over there, um, which was a, a nonviolent resistance protest movement in Serbia, inspired by Dr. King, inspired by Gandhi. Uh, they were very effective. And, you know, I so I talked to him about, like, like what are they doing, right? Totally different context from race in the United States of America. But it was the exact same theory. It wasn't that, like, the security forces deserved nonviolence on the part of the protesters. It was that literally the Serbian opposition movement could not defeat the police in a combat situation. They didn't have a strategy to create a revolution to overthrow the government. Like they they just like they couldn't do it, right? What they could do was stage marches that were I think different from like nonviolent resistance is not the same as quote unquote peaceful protest. Um, it's disruptive, right? It's like like the point of a lunch counter sit-in is that the lunch counter now doesn't function. So you're there, you're sitting, you're not you're not peaceful protesting. You are breaking the law, but now somebody has to do something about it, right? They call in the cops and the cops say, Well, you gotta get up, and you don't get up. Right. And then if you I, I've I've done these trainings, I don't have the um, persona anymore of a left wing protest person, um, but they teach you how to go limp so that when the police want to make you move, they have to drag you in a way that you're flopping around, banging your head on shit. And like it sucks. Right. Like, I don't know if I would have the um, composure to go through with it. But the point isn't don't push back on the cops because it's wrong. The point is you were trying to create a spectacle in which all you were doing 
was standing by this door. All you were doing is sitting on this bus. All you're doing is going to the lunch counter. And in response, you're getting dragged around. Your face is getting smashed up. Kids have fire hoses turned on them, right? Like it's deliberate and it's a PR strategy. And you're trying to create an image where the the latent brutality of the state is brought forward. And then people say to themselves, oh shit, You know, like I used to think, eh, what's the big deal? But like now it's a big deal. There are children being bitten by dogs. There are people getting beaten up. There's stuff happening. Members of the security forces themselves are supposed to think, is this what I want to do with my time? Like I was here to preserve the integrity of like society, but like now I'm beating on defenseless women. It is exactly what you saw with the National Guardsmen or National Guard who got called into the protests in D.C. was a lot of exactly that kind of self-examination, which is interesting because it was a contrast to the kind of locked down bunker mentality we're used to seeing when police are facing off against protesters. You know, somebody who was new to this saying, whoa, this is not what I signed up for, and I don't know that this was right. So that's what I mean. This has always been a tactical... I mean, it stems from, like, Hindu and Christian religious concepts, but I think, like, the point of nonviolent resistance is more efficacious than looting and vandalism is not a categorical judgment that like, quote unquote, violence doesn't work. Because I see people come back on this with like, well, like Ku Klux Klan violence during Reconstruction was very effective, which obviously it was. Uh, There's some evidence that anti-abortion terrorism is effective at getting people to not want to go into that line of work uh, because you might you might be murdered. Obviously, uh, dropping nuclear weapons on Japan was like effective. The problem for protesters, right, when when nonviolent resistance is called for, is that you're not going to win with the use of force. So then the question is, what are you going to do? And it's so much harder to do what Wasa was talking about here, to do what King and John Lewis and others organized, because it goes against human nature to just stand there and take the beating. But it's more effective because it's more dramatic and it just it clarifies how bad the bad guys are. And if you're sitting there and you're like, well, I already thought the bad guys were bad, it can be very frustrating because it's like, well, why should people have to do that? But like the reason they have to do that is you're, they're trying to persuade people that they're bad guys. And so to change people's mind, you do like you need to go above and beyond because like changing minds is difficult. It's the most banal thing in the world, but I think sometimes people don't think it through. It's like it's hard to persuade people. There's a passage in the paper, but it, you know, the idea the the role of persuasion and especially not just a political persuasion, but what you're asking us for is sociocultural persuasion. And that's really, really hard, especially to make people think of, you know, change their mind, but also recognize that they need they need to or should have a position on this issue at all to persuade people, not even necessarily from going from one side to another, but to have a side in any fight at all. It's interesting because that has led to a lot of fulminating about who gets to comment on what and how people should be persuaded and persuaded again to do what because i think that so much of the focus has been on the element of like changing minds but then changing them into what is an is another piece of this challenge the other question is 
who is responsible for bearing the onus of that, right? It it can always be difficult when we're talking especially about uh, the difference between nonviolent and violent protests. Like, the only thing that differentiates something from getting coded as a violent versus nonviolent protest in this paper is essentially, you know, did somebody pull out a gun? Did somebody start, you know, like, like start setting fires? That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the leaders of the protest wanted. That doesn't necessarily mean that a majority of people taking part in the action weren't committed to nonviolence. And so in addition to the moralized discussion of is it appropriate to blame the movement or to blame protesters for acts of violence, uh, you know, in, in addition to the question of like, is that even something that people should be judging or blaming for? You have the idea of like, okay, when we're talking about framing, does the media accurately reflect the, you know, and this is something that I think nobody got right during the last couple of weeks. It's very, very difficult to know exactly how many people among a protesting group of people are there having already decided that they were willing to destroy property or to, you know, antagonize or like throw things at police or whatever. How many of those people got caught up in the heat of the moment? How many of those people uh, opposed it silently? And how many people were trying to stop it? Like, you don't have a sense of that. And so trying to characterize that group is difficult. The other you know, deeper level of who gets agency is to what extent is it appropriate to treat violent repression as just like a thing that happens, right? As opposed to giving like explicit blame to security forces for creating the conditions. In the case of this paper, because a lot of it focuses on the 1968 election and the April 1968 riots following the assassination of Martin Luther King, the conclusion is essentially that had Martin Luther King not been assassinated, Democrats would have won in 1968, which is like, you know, when you're playing with counterfactuals, you're always playing with fire. So it's definitely a like bold claim. But if you flip the script on that, you can see the assassination of Martin Luther King as an extremely effective act of right wing political violence where like, oh, yeah. you know, in for all of the talk in this paper about like left wing movements are going to shift the narrative against them by using violence. This was a very this successfully, you know, ended up shifting the frame against support for civil rights and towards support for, you know, towards support for a racially conservative law and order mentality. So, you know, it's it's just worth bearing in mind that you should be giving agency to, you know, the people who are, especially people who are thinking actively about how their actions fit into a broader strategy and to what extent they're willing to, to live with some, you know, blowback in order to pursue some broader goal. But it's, it's also worth bearing in mind that the conditions that those people are dealing with are themselves the product of choices that got made by people with a little more power. But I think even even in your in your frame, Dara, right? It, see, it's it's like it's kind of a numbers game, right? But like assassinating King radicalizes essentially the target community, and they deploy more violence, and then the rioting radicalizes the white community, and it becomes more right wing. Uh, but in America, like when that happens, white people just win the election. Right. Like 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 the the unfairness comes down to the numerical imbalance to some extent. And so it's like the strategy that works for the majority, you know, 
I don't know. Like it's it's an unlevel playing field. It's also interesting because so much of that is respond. You know, at in 1968, white voters are responding not to the murder of a civil rights leader, but to the reaction to the murder. And so much of this, um, you know, even the moment that we're having now or what we had after Charlottesville or after the um, murder spree of Dylan Roof is so much like reacting to the reaction, which I find to be kind of a fascinating phenomenon more broadly. This also makes me think that we should do an entire counterfactuals episode because Democrats could have won in 1968 is the counterfactual I will not buy in on. I absolutely will I, not. I hate counterfactuals with blinding hot rage of death. I was just... I think. Oh, no. oh man. I love no. counterfactuals. Okay, Darren, next time you take a vacation, Jane and I, we're going to do counterfactuals. Yep. We're going to talk about uh, Star Trek. Yep. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Um, if if Cisco hadn't gone back during the Bell Riots, we might never have developed uh, the utopian welfare state. That's true. So Too much to talk about, about Bejor. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, see, Bejor goes back to nonviolent resistance. Calm down, Kira. No one wants to hear about that right now. Anyway, uh, I, I think that the fact that we're discussing Star Trek Deep Space Nine means that we, we should probably yeah, wrap up we're this probably episode. Done. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Yes. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks uh, to everyone who participates uh, in the Facebook group. Um, thanks to Jeffrey Geld, our producer. And these will be back on Friday with Jane's interview all about qualified immunity. So check that out. Bye. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.